0: Our scripture text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. There has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom his favor rests. When the angels had gone away from them into the heaven treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear your word and hear the old, familiar story, may it fall upon our ears as fresh, abundantly good news. Lord, the shepherds heard it and wondered at what they were told. May our hearts hear this news as well and wonder at a Savior born for us, born to die for us. May He be the King that reigns in every heart this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Alberta family, it is a joy uh, to be with you this morning. It's a joy to be in this pulpit where some of my favorite people and preachers have preached. This is a Sunday that uh, normally you don't call uh, your Best preacher to preach uh, holiday weekends. You are getting the worst preacher in the family uh, on this weekend, uh, although I'm, I'm pretty sure I wasn't the, the first in the family that KJ asked to preach today. Uh, you're getting the deepest person in the bullpen, but I'm just happy to be on the team. Just glad to be able to be here uh, and be before you with Luke chapter two, this most familiar of the nativity stories, recounting Jesus' birth to us. I think one of the reasons why this is the most familiar is because Luke gives us the most details of any of the birth narratives. But I think even more for us, one of the reasons why this account is the most familiar is because of Charlie Brown. On December 9th, 1965, the Charlie Brown Christmas special aired for the first time and has aired on CBS every year since then. My mom told me that she actually memorized Luke chapter 2 as a child just by watching Charlie Brown once a year, every year. And, of course, my mom memorized that by listening to Charlie Brown in the KJV. I almost told KJ to put up his NASB and read it in the KJV today because the KJV sounds right, right, when reading this account together. But the problem is often sometimes we can become so familiar with something it begins to lose its power. There's even a greater problem sometimes when we become so familiar with something, but the things that we become familiar with actually don't do a very good job of portraying reality to us. The nativity has become a very familiar part of our culture, but we may not have the most accurate picture of what the nativity looks like in our culture one of the things I remember as a child learning that the wise men were not actually at the nativity. And so the way I would mess with my mom is by getting the wise men and hiding them in different parts of the house and telling them to tell my mom, hey, the wise men are still a long way away. But some people that were there, as we just read in the text, is the shepherds. But the shepherds have kind of become a cute part of this story, right? And I've, There's some few kids that I'm pretty partial to that have played cute little shepherds in Christmas plays before. But the shepherds actually were not cute. The shepherds were actually a despised group of people in Israel. The shepherds couldn't testify in court. They weren't considered trustworthy. Normally, they were not able to participate in the religious life in Israel because they were often around unclean or dead animals. If we believe the rabbis of the first century, any flock that would have been This close to Jerusalem would have been raised in order to be a part of the sacrificial system in Jerusalem. And so these shepherds were there raising animals that were going to be a part of the religious life in Israel. But they themselves were religious outsiders. Before we look at the shepherds, let's look at the setting for this story that KJ just recounted for us. Beginning in Luke chapter 2. Let's read it again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So we just read, as our call to worship, Micah 5.2, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. So again, hundreds of years before this takes place, the prophecy, the promise, the Messiah would come. But the question for the people of God is, how would all these things come about? How would all these things, how would all these promises be fulfilled in the Messiah? The Lord's providence, his sovereign work in the world is always at work. Our God can cause anything to happen that he desires. He can use anyone at any time. He can use even broken people and things to bring about his perfect plan. At this time in redemptive history, Israel is back in their homeland, but they're still kind of in exile. It's like they were, like you could live in your house, but someone could tell you what to do all the time. They're still under the authority of a foreign power, can tell them what they can and can't not do in their own land. But here we see the Lord's providence at work in Luke chapter two. There are names listed of some of the most powerful people in the first century world. They're listed to give us historical context, but then these most powerful people are almost forgotten for the rest of Luke. But God here is using even pagan Roman rulers to do his bidding. Jesus is king. We just sang about it. Jesus king long before Kanye said he was king. And Jesus will forever be the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is the one, again, of Isaiah. The government is on his shoulders and he is strong enough to carry it all. So no matter what pagan ruler seems to be in control in the first century world or even in our day today, we can have confidence that Jesus' authority is greater and Jesus' kingdom is going to last longer. Again, think about it. Jesus was born into a world of Roman domination. Everywhere you looked in the world where Jesus was born, you would see signs that Caesar is Lord, that he is the one that has power, that his kingdom was going forth and spreading over the world. But who's scared of Rome today? There isn't a Caesar anymore. Again, Jesus is the one 2,000 years later that we are talking about whose kingdom is still growing and spreading and of his kingdom and rule, there will be no end. So while Caesar Augustus here, we read about the beginning of Luke 2, was pridefully trying to show the world how great he was by having all the people in his kingdom registered and counted, our God was showing the world how great he is by sending his son to be born in humility in Bethlehem sending his son to save his people. The king of the cosmos came in humility as a baby. As Charles Spurgeon says, the infinite has become an infant. We'll see that in verse seven. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In Philippians chapter two, Paul recounts to us beautifully, probably a song that the early Christians sang together, recounts the humility of the incarnation, of God becoming man. We see a picture of that humility in this manger, don't we? The Messiah will be born and placed in a manger. But things would actually get worse for Jesus in his life. Later in Luke's gospel, in Luke nine fifty eight, he says, foxes have holes, birds have their nest." But the son of man doesn't even have a manger anymore. He doesn't have any place to lay his head, Jesus says. I don't make a habit of quoting Joel Osteen in sermons, but I'm about to do that now. This is what old Joel says. He says, when you're poor, broke, and defeated, all that proves is that you're poor, broke, and defeated. It doesn't bring any honor to God. If I brought my two children up here on the platform today and their clothes were all raggedy, worn out, holes in their shoes, hair not combed, you would look at me and think, what kind of father is he? It'd be a poor reflection on me. Joel says, listen, when you look good, you dress good, you live in a nice place, excel in your career, that brings a smile to God's face. Let me ask you, how does that fit with Advent? How does that fit with this scene here in Luke 2? If that was true, what would that say about our heavenly father who sent his son into the world to live with nothing, No place to lay his head. There's no room for him. Part of the job of shepherds is to fight off wolves, even smiling wolves. In Jesus' kingdom, the first will be last. The way to be great is to be a servant of all. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus didn't just teach this, he modeled it with his life. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. In Luke chapter one, the angel has just told Mary, greeted her, greetings, O highly favored one. We have to ask, does this scene in Luke two sound like favor? Again, that there's no room for them having to put the Messiah in a manger, put the one in whom the government will be on his shoulders and of his rule and reign, there will be no end into a place that's a feeding trough for cattle? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that God has chosen the weak, the despised of the world in order to shame the noble and the strong. Again, we see this right before this text in Mary's song. The rich and the poor are contrasted there for us. God tells us, Mary tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the God is the one who takes the powerful and rich of the world and brings them down and sends them away empty. But the poor, he is raised up. Mary actually quotes Psalm 113, which is a reference to Hannah's song as well, that our God is the one who lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. This is what our God does. He loves to save those that are poor, those who are despised in the world. He loves to lift them up, to give them a place in his kingdom. Again, we need to make sure that we are not following an Americanized Jesus, one that's been created in our own image. We need to make sure we're actually following the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus, again, that was the Messiah, the one that we sang about, that had the riches of heaven and left that to enter into poverty in the first century world. It's clear if you keep reading the Gospel of Luke, unless you have a spiritual poverty about you, you're not getting into Jesus' kingdom. Unless you know yourself to be needy, helpless, spiritually bankrupt, there's no hope for you. But if you know yourself to be needy, if you know yourself to be spiritually poor, again, Jesus' kingdom is near to you today. His invitation is for all of you to come and to be welcome into his kingdom the Lord sovereignly chose to announce the birth of the Messiah to some of the lowest in the land. Look at verse eight. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. So the scene here is the shepherds are out again in this flock at night. The reason why shepherds have to be out in the field at night is to keep watch over their flocks so that wolves don't come and devour their flocks. This dark sky gets filled up with the light of God's glory. This baby has been born, this Messiah has been born in Bethlehem and stuff, strange stuff starts happening all around. An angel shows up to this rough ragtag group of men that aren't afraid of much. Again, they have to be out there because they're willing to fight off fierce animals, wolves, some tough men. Not much scares them, but the text here says they're filled with great fear, or as Linus taught us, they're sorely afraid. Right. Consistent with the rest of scripture is their response here. They're scared. Maybe unlike also this Commonly portrayed for us, angels are not cute and cuddly little things. As my youth pastor would say, people will tee in their tunics when angels show up. <laughs> these are warrior messengers sent by the Lord here. And these shepherds are sorely afraid. They're filled with great fear. This passage in Look 2 is all about Jesus. But Jesus almost just mentioned in passing here as the baby in a manger. But here, Luke uses the shepherds and the angels to point us to the glory of the Messiah, of the one who is in the manger. Look at the message from the angels in verse two. The angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you when you find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So again, we may have to work here in some ways. I love Charlie Brown Christmas Special. We watch as a family on Christmas Eve ourselves, but may have to do some work to maybe turn that off or that cute children's Christmas play. And remember who these shepherds really are again. Remember that these men are religious outsiders. They're looked down upon. They're despised by their fellow Israelites, thought of as a low-class, dirty group of people who couldn't be trusted, But who does the Lord choose to send the first birth announcement of the Messiah to? Not to a king in his court, not to religious leaders, not to the Sanhedrin, to the the Sadducees and Pharisees, but to lowly, stinky shepherds. He doesn't send it through the mail, but he sends heavenly messengers, a heavenly host, to proclaim this good news to them. And hear me, if, if you were being strategic and thinking about starting a marketing campaign for a new political messiah and savior you wouldn't have chosen these cats you wouldn't choose these guys to be the ones to do the infomercial for you and these guys couldn't even testify in court but me anyway, i don't know who is all in the room today some of you may have been brought as a family member because it's christmas time you may be skeptical of everything i've said this far but i think one of the reasons why if you are skeptical of these things you should get Consider that these things may actually be true is because if you were making this story up, these are not the guys you would choose. This is not how the story would go if you're trying to win a hearing and following with other people. But this is exactly who God chooses. And if we as the people of God are considering this, this should show us how gracious our God is, how incredible his plan is. Again, is a picture, an illustration of 1 Corinthians 1 for us that God has chosen the low and despised in the world to shame the high and mighty. Later in Luke's gospel, we read how as Jesus is eating with sinners, with prostitutes and tax collectors, Luke records for us, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, at Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, But those who are sick, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus isn't saying here that there are some people that actually aren't sinners. He's the only sinless one. But there are some people who see themselves as self-righteous, as righteous within themselves, as not needing a savior to save them from their sin. The angels here have come and said they have brought good news of great joy. But hear me, this good news of great joy is only good news if you know the bad news first. So, the beginning of this month, I had an annual procedure where doctors knocked me out and go in and make sure no cancers come back in my body. And thankfully got good news. It was great. It was a relief to get good news once again. But it's only good news in light of the bad news, right? There's a couple of phone calls. I never forget in my life. I remember getting a phone call from my doctor and telling me that no cancer had spread to my kidneys. I remember getting another call from my doctor and telling me that I could come off cancer treatments and they were changing my cancer grade. Those were good news. It was great joy that was brought to our family got those things. But those things only made sense and were only good news because I had gotten a string of bad news first. Again, just getting those calls would not have felt like good news. It would have been very confusing if I hadn't gotten the bad news first, right? The bad news for all of us that we're all born was something more deadly than terminal cancer. Since our first parents rebelled against their creator in the garden in Genesis three, sin has come into the world and brought a curse with it. And because of that, we're all born into a world of sin and we're all born as sinners with a sinful nature that makes us do what Paul tells us in Romans one. We worship the creation rather than the creator. Again, I know a lot of us got good gifts yesterday, but our problem as sinners is that we often worship the gifts rather than the giver of those gifts the God who created over all things. And because of sin, everything you love is dying. All your favorite plants and pets and people are passing away. But the good news of great joy goes all the way back to that garden in Genesis 3. Even before God pronounces the curse upon humanity for their sin, he provides the remedy He says, the seed of the woman is coming. A child is coming, is going to be born. It's going to come and crush the head of God's enemies and reverse this curse. And this is what we celebrate during this Advent season, isn't it? That this promised one has come. The promised one of Genesis 3, again, it's going to come crush the head of the serpent. The promised one of Genesis 12, it's going to come be a blessing to all the peoples of God. The promised one of Isaiah 7 and 9, the one that's gonna be born of the virgin and and that the government's gonna be on his shoulders and of his rule and reign, there'll be no end. But also the promised one of Isaiah 53, the one who's gonna come and bear the sins of his people, that this one has come, that he is the promised one. Jesus, this long prophesied savior, has come to take the curse of sin upon himself as we read about in Galatians three, and this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took the curse of sin upon himself, all the judgment that we deserve upon himself, so that as we sing during this Advent season, so he might make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. All who believe in him, all who turn from their sin and themselves and trust in Jesus can be forgiven, can find blessing in Jesus rather than the curse of what our sin deserves. This is the good news of great joy that's come for all people that Jesus purchased for us. He has purchased our peace. Jesus defeated the power of sin and death through his resurrection and offers life to us today. This is good news of great joy pronounced here first to shepherds, to lowly shepherds, and even to lowly you today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and martyr, said this, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Jesus only came to save big sinners who know that they need a big savior. After the angel finished preaching his sermon, in verse 12, the angelic choir comes out to sing a closing song. Let's look at what they say here in verses 13 and 14. All of a sudden and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They sing glory to God in the highest. The Bidi Anyambule says this, the Lord believes high theology should be given to lowly people. Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. They announce peace to these shepherds. This is one of the things, again, we get to celebrate that peace has come to us. We celebrate that during this Advent Christmas season. But I know for some of you, because we still live in a cursed world, a dark world that the lights come into, that when you think about Christmas, it doesn't feel very peaceful. And for some of you, again, there's a lot of pain that surrounds this time. Whether that's because you've lost someone that you love deeply that's not around your table this year. Or that's because of some other family tensions with people who are around your table. You often feel a lot of pain rather than peace during this time. But know again, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you can have peace with God you can have peace with the God of the universe. The angels were sent to proclaim peace to these shepherds and I feel in the Lord's providence, he has sent me to pronounce peace to all of you today. You can have peace with the God of the universe because of the Prince of Peace, because of Jesus and what he has done for you. Again, all you have to do today is turn from yourself and your sin and to turn and trust in Jesus, in faith, to receive his peace, And as we receive his peace through faith, we can begin to reflect his peace more and more to those around us. If you've received this good news of great joy, then I think the proper response is that we shouldn't be able to contain it. Look at the response of these shepherds in verse 15. When the shepherds went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And they saw it. They made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. So these shepherds here, they could not contain this good news of great joy. It was not a duty for them to go to Bethlehem. Do you notice the language here? They're going with haste. They're running as fast as they can. They're proclaiming this good news of great joy to everyone, even as they leave Mary and Joseph. These people, again, that can't testify in court elsewhere, are going and proclaiming the good news of what God has done and bringing the Messiah as has been born in Bethlehem. But if I'm honest and vulnerable for you, I think too often... It feels more like a duty than a delight. Too, too often it feels more like an obligation to proclaim these things. One of my prayers this Advent season, is in my own heart, Lord, fulfill, renew a sense of awe and wonder within me. The awe and wonder that hopefully we all experienced when we first believed. The awe and wonder that we see here, we read about in Luke chapter two from these shepherds. The same language of them going and praising God and proclaiming to others all they'd seen and heard. It's the same language used in the book of Acts about the apostles. Even after they're beaten, they said, we, we can't stop speaking about the things we've seen and heard. Do we have that sense of awe when we think about these truths? When we think about what God has done for us in Jesus? When we think about the Messiah in the manger? We think about the Christ who has gone to the cross to bear our curse upon himself. Does that lead us to awe and wonder as the people of God? What we love is never far from our lips. We see here these shepherds go with great joy and proclaim this good news of great joy to all those around them. And the proper response for us to this good news is for us to ponder these things in our heart the way that we see Mary and Joseph doing here to ponder these things, and to go and proclaim these things, to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of the darkness of this world into his marvelous light. So we as the people of God now live between the advents. We live between Jesus' first and second coming. All is not made new yet. Again, the curse is still here. Pandemics still persist. Sickness and sadness, disease and death are still around us. But what Jesus has brought into this dark world is hope. He's brought peace. And today, again, you can have the peace that only the Prince of Peace can offer you through faith. And my prayer is that we as the people of God would live each day in light of these two advents. That we live each day in light of what Jesus has purchased for us, the Prince of Peace who has purchased peace for his people, peace with God and peace we can have now with those around us, that also we would live each day in light of the final day, in light of the day when all will be made right, when all will be made new, when there will be no more curse left in this world, when there will be no more darkness left in this world. The light of life will come and fill this world with his light. But until that day, May the Lord give us grace to live each day in light of what he's come and done for us. Let me pray, Lord, give us grace to do that. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to ponder these things in our hearts, that you would restore our all within us for what you've done for us in Jesus so that we can more faithfully proclaim this good news of great joy to others. Help us to live each day in light of what you've already done for us in Jesus. And also each day in light of the final day of what's coming for us in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to all respond in faith, to all afresh and anew, turn from our sin, turn from trusting in ourselves, knowing we have all gone after things that can never save us or satisfy us. And look to Jesus, the only one who can save us and satisfy us. We need your helper to help us do these things. Father, I do pray that your spirit, who's also a comforter, would comfort those that are groaning, that are longing for the day when all things will be made right. I pray that we would be able to by the power of your spirit to be a reflection of the peace that the Prince of Peace offers to others. And give us grace to proclaim your excellencies Of you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light until that final day where we will enjoy that light fully and forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.